You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at home and abroad, and um, I have the pleasure of uh, sharing some time now with a guy who is living in uh, California, and many of you may or may not have seen him on uh, TV or in the cinema, uh, because he has a long list of credit when it comes to his acting career. And they span uh, from uh, Days of Our Lives, uh, Blackstock Boneyard, Redemption, A Call to Spy, uh, The Hotel Barclay, Leaving the Life, uh, The Shop, going back, and we're now back in 2014. Now, I'm actually about to talk to someone from Arva in Cavan, hmm. who has gone from Arva in Cavan to Hollywood. Richie Stevens, Fantastic to meet you. Delighted to be able to have a chat. How are you doing, Austin? Thanks Thanks for inviting me on. And I know it's a circuitous route to go from Harvard to Hollywood, and we'll, we'll get there. Um, but to put it in context straight up, how long are you hanging around Hollywood? Yeah, I moved here um, nine years ago. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So before that, you start out and come back to Arva, a quiet little spot. I've never been. It's one of the few counties. You know, we do a lot of traveling around Ireland, but Cavan is one of the ones that we still have to get up to because my mother was living in Athlone. And I got up into Longford and up around Westmead and all the rest. And my, I have a brother in Carrick and Shannon. And we never actually made it into Cavan yet, but we're getting there. It's a nice bit of time. Yeah, if, you, if you like fishing, there's a lot of lakes in Cavan. Yeah. There's one one lake for every day of the year. That's that's the Cavan claim to fame. Right. So Arva's a quite little spot. That is, yeah. Yeah, the, it's it Arva's where the three provinces meet. So you have Ulster, uh Leinster and Connacht all meet in Arva. And um, what province would it claim to be it? Oh, it's in Ulster, but okay. you can get yeah. you can get to get to those three from Arva, it's like a crossroads kind of right. thing. Right. And how big is Arva? Uh, it's a little town. There's only a few hundred people in it, I'd say. Right. How far from Cavan Town itself, then? It'll be about a half hour. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, growing up, you're growing up in a traditional Irish rural environment where everybody knows everything, and if you step out of line, someone will tell the parents before you. It's it's back home before you actually finish committing the crime. Exactly. Everybody knows everybody. <laughs> So, how was that? Tell, uh, give us a little bit of background of the, the upbringing. Um, well, you know, my, my folks were normal enough uh, upbringing, except for my old man was a Protestant and my, my mother was a Catholic, so that was kind of unusual. So, that's 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 why my name is R- Richard Stevens, you know, and... Uh, but um, my mother was a strict Catholic, so we all... We were... My, my brothers and sisters were... were uh, we were raised Catholic. And... Um, yeah, I suppose I was a kind of a shy young fella. Um, I didn't have a lot of self-confidence and I was kind of full of fear as well. I used to kind of let people push me around a little bit. And I, w- I went to Catholic school and that wasn't a lot of fun when you have a Protestant name. Like, um, So I did. I, I suppose I got pushed around a little bit when I was younger. And then I started drinking when I was about 14 or 15 and that, that just changed everything for me. When you say you've been pushed around, were you, I, always I find when we talk on Zoom and things like that, nobody gets a sense of somebody's real height 
or size. Mm-hmm. Were you a small yeah. kid or were you were you an average kid? Would you say? Well, I'm tall. I'm six foot two. Right. But when I came to America, I was only 160 pounds. Right. So, so I'm about 40 pounds heavier now than I was back then. I was skinny and I was skinny shy and didn't have a lot of confidence. You know, so even though I, I, I yeah, you know, when I was growing up, there was a lot of talk about, like, in regards to the troubles, it was very sectarian in terms of Protestants and Catholics. So I had a Protestant name in a Catholic school, and there was a lot of this whole talk about, you know, derogatory terms for for Protestants, and you know, I was would have been targeted with that kind of stuff, you know. Right. 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 So, um, what kind of a student were you? I was always in the top class in school, but the report card always said, uh, can't do better. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I was a kind of lazy, I guess. I really hated school. I absolutely hated it. But I did the bare minimum to get by. And were you into sports? I was into them, but I was no good at them. I had zero right. talent for sports. I, I especially like like soccer. They call it here in America, football back home. Um, I love. I'm a big Man United fan, but I I, I love soccer. You right. say it every day. Like my dream was to be a professional soccer player. Right. No matter how many hours I spent at it, I was never any good at it. <laughs> <laughs> and there wasn't a whole lot of soccer teams in, in Calvin, so I played GAA. I played GAA up to junior level. Right. I didn't. Didn't play for Arva too. That was another weird one. I, they sent, even though I'm from Arva, they sent me to school in Gauna. All so right. I played, so I played for Gauna as well. So I was, I was, I was a, a, a Catholic with a Protestant name in a Catholic school, and I was an Arva man playing for the Gauna team. Right. So, so I was always a bit of an odd man out. But yeah, when I was playing football, I, I, I used to be very in my head, like you know, overthinking everything. Like right. the old the old brain never shut up. So when I was playing football and the some I was I was a half forward or a corner forward. So when the ball came to me, as soon as I got the ball I'd be in a good position, but it would take me so long to make up my mind where I want to put the ball that someone would just nail me. You know, and and, and I'd say I probably I probably got got knocked down more than anybody. Because that's just I was so so uh um, I couldn't relax or switch off, you know. Right, so, right. And plus, plus, I had no talent at it too. Like, you know, like I, uh, yeah. I, I, some people are good at some things, and 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 some people aren't. And I was no good at football. But where I came from, it was important to play football. Like, right. being a footballer was more important than being a doctor. Right. You know, and 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 like where I'm from, even if you were no good at it you were still expected to, quote-unquote, tog out, yeah. you know. And if you if you didn't tog out, even to sit on the bench, you were just considered a loser, like like no right. good part of the community. Right. So so I felt that kind of pressure, too, when I was living there to, to tog out, even though I sucked. I was no good. Like, uh, Richie, when you say you went to Counter, was that still national school or was that secondary school? That was national school. I went to the secondary school in Calvin. Right, right. And... Um, how was that relative to a small school in Gona? You know, the small school in Gona, the, there was no bullying went on there really, like because of you know my background, so yeah. it was a little bit nicer there, you know. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a much bigger school in Cavan, so yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And then you went to university in Maynooth. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I found some of that intriguing. Um, first of all, what were you studying? Um, I studied history and sociology. In, in Ireland, you do two majors. In America, you usually only do one. So I did history because I was always good at history. And I did sociology because I heard it was easy. (laughs) 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 I was told told sociologists don't believe in success and failure. They believe in different levels of achievement. (laughs) So, so, you know, and it it was kind of true, too. I think I was good at it, too. I got good marks in college, even though I was misbehaving and at that point addicted to drugs and everything but okay. yeah well, we'll, we'll, we'll yeah we'll talk so, about that now so anyway you say you you kind of got introduced to alcohol when you were about 14 or 15 mm-hmm, yeah and that changed things for you yeah yeah when i started drinking uh it completely changed how i felt as a person right. like as i said before i was all kind of shy and nervous and fearful and and worried about what everybody thought about me and as soon as I started drinking, it was the opposite of that. I didn't care what anybody thought about me. My my brain kind of kept quiet, and I had all kinds of Dutch courage where I could I had I could fight and I could score with women, and it was just it was the answer to my problem that, and I didn't realize I had the problem until I started drinking. Right. Because right. I norm, that was normality in hindsight for how I felt before, and then when I started drinking, I was like, "Jesus, this is this is great. I need to do this all the time, whatever the cost." Like, now, uh, when you say whatever the cost, of course, um, I have no idea what the price of a pint is in Ireland now, but I know it's not cheap. So, um, when you're <laughs> when when you're in secondary school, you don't have a lot of money. No. And, and likewise, when you're in Gowna or Arva or even around Cavan, it's not like again in North America where most, well, when I was growing up, nobody had a job. Some, like mm-hmm. kids, students didn't have jobs. Yeah. So yeah. I, I doubt if you were, your parents weren't giving you enough pocket money to be off on the, the tear every weekend or every night. No, no. Like, um, you know, my first job was working at a, at a petrol station or a gas station. It was a minimum wage job. That was my first legit job, and that money went went uh, on booze, you know. And see, I used to like drinking outside because when you're 14 or 15 years old, you can't get into the bars and the clubs. The drinking age is 18 in Ireland, right. and um, you know it's cold and wet in Ireland, so it's not it's not not very fun to be outside drinking. So I wanted to be inside the bars and the clubs with the with the grown ups and, and that's where all the, the dolls were and I wanted to be a, I wanted to be an adult. Right. So so I needed a fake ID. That was the problem. And there was a friend of mine, his mother had a chip shop in Cavan and uh one of the customers left behind their ID when they were drunk one night or it must have fell out of their pocket and, and he showed me the ID and, and uh it it looked fairly easy to copy. So then, then I had something to copy off, and uh, you know I got on my computer and I, I figured out how to make fake IDs and you, you know I I, I had, were, in those days they were really easy to make like just a blue card with typewriter on it and a photograph and a Garda stamp on the back and and it laminated so I, I figured out how to make it and it worked like a charm and I was able to get into all the bars and the clubs and. 
And then other people heard that I had one and, and they asked me to make them as a favor. And then eventually I par- partnered with another fellow who was a friend of mine. And uh, he came up with the idea of making having it as a business. I'll make them and he'll sell them. And the thing just mushroomed. It was, you know, I was making loads of them for people in other schools and everything before I knew it. And that continued, of course, when you hit, uh, you, well, you didn't need to make IDs once you hit university. No, that's uh, I I got caught by the cops uh, with making the IDs and that put an end to that one, and uh, and then I was good for a couple of years and then when I went to college I got into the drugs and it was the same thing with the drugs I just uh, you know I wanted to do them as much as I could and didn't have the money for them and and then eventually all my friends started asking me to get them for them and by default I became a drug dealer. No. To me, that sounds straight away like you're in dangerous territory. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because um, I don't know if anyone has ever heard of a story where somebody gets into the um, drug dealing business and they come out of it um, without some degree of scarring, whether it be mm-hmm. phys- physical, and, men- and many times it is physical. Um, very much a high risk, dangerous existence yeah absolutely yeah and i have lots of physical and mental scars from, from all them years of doing that stuff you know i have i have bite marks here in my nose from someone came into my house and beat me and tortured me and bit my face and you know this is a fake tooth in the front of my mouth that was knocked out of me another night where i was beaten unconscious and ended up in the hospital for a few days and, um I have had four or five suicide attempts down through the years, you know. Um, a lot of bad things have happened as a result of going down that road. Now, I remember reading in the book, um, and I didn't actually it, it announce the name of the book yet. I'll hold off on that for a little bit longer. But that um, you were set up to come back to Arva for a party and to be the supplier. And mm. there was a welcoming party waiting, waiting for you. Oh yeah, the old uh, the uh, <laughs> I, uh, in my ecstasy dealing days, I I had a couple of employees all all over Ireland. And I was sending them to different towns and stuff like that. And there was a fella from back home in Cavan, and he got caught by the cops. And then you know he set me up, and and uh, the cops were waiting for me, and I got into deep trouble with that. I was very lucky I didn't go to jail, you know. And so when you got off the bus. You were heading back to be the supplier for the night. The, the cops were waiting for you. Exactly. Yeah, it was on the bus, and you know, uh, coming down, and the fellow who who, who uh, the fellow who rang me, or or the fellow who who ordered the stuff, he he kept ringing me the whole time. Where are you now? Where are you now? Where are you now? <laughs> and and you know, the whole my whole instincts were telling me that this is there's something dodgy about this and but I was so worn out at the time from ducking and diving and the stress of looking out for the cops and trying to avoid them and the stress of other people, rivals who who'd be trying to take over your job or your your territory or whatever, or you know, people trying to rip you off or People not paying you back the money to owe you. I was so stressed out at that time. I didn't give a shit whether or not the cops were there. I'll take whatever it is. And lo and behold, they were there. Right. <laughs> Put the handcuffs on me and in front of everybody. I, I actually, the bus was coming 
into Cavan Town, and I, I was getting really paranoid because the, the fella kept bringing me, where are you now, where are you now? <laughs> uh, and and uh, I, I said, fuck it, I better get off before the bus bus station in case they're waiting for me. And I hopped off at the Meadowview uh, pub and restaurant just outside of Cavan. And uh, I, my, my friends were waiting for me, other friends. And uh, as soon as I got into the car, it was surrounded by the police and don't move, you're under arrest. <laughs> it's like to put the handcuffs on me and tuck me in and strip search me. And, you know, it just wasn't fun. Um, the consequences of that, were you did, were you tried? Were you convicted? Did you get time or what happened out of that? I ended up getting a few years probation. And, okay. Uh, you know, I, I behaved as much as they knew and um and it was struck out in the end, they gave me another chance. But I was I was really lucky. I, I could have totally got away with it. Um the cops at the time they wanted me to, to rat on the person above me. Yeah. Like they, they offered me the deal. Because that's what the guy who had done to me. I think uh, in the book I call him Ollie, but most of the names are changed in the book to protect people's identity. But so Ollie had set me up, and then the cops were. They says to me, um, "We just want the bigger fella. Give us the bigger fella, and you won't even go to court." So that option was available to me, but I didn't want to do that because if you snitch on somebody, you have to look over your shoulder for the rest of your life. And that fella Ollie had to leave Cavan because he had snitched on other people. And, so every time he went outside the house, people were boxing him and punching him in the head. Like right, you know, he, right, he, right. he moved to New York. So I just said I'd take take whatever they're going to give me and just hope for the best, you know. Right, to, right. You know. So um, <clears throat> when you got your probation, mm-hmm. how long more did you stay in Ireland? So um, when I got the, when I got into trouble, I had to quit college and everything like that too. I was I, I was gonna I was gonna fail anyway because I was doing so much drugs and taking time off, and uh, so I I moved back to Cavan for a year and, and um, tried to get my shit together. And you know I was lucky; I had a really nice probation officer. She was a lovely woman, like, and <laughs> you know I I'd go to meet her, and I suppose compared to some of the fellas she had, I, I was probably an angel compared to some of the scumbags she was dealing with. And and um, you know, she'd say she'd say to me, uh, "What's a lovely young fella like you doing, involved in drugs?" <laughs> and uh, I, I I I you know acted as innocent as I could at the time. I said, "Oh, I was hanging out with a bad crowd," you know. <laughs> but I was the ringleader at the time, you know. <laughs> and and uh, but she she was nice on anyway. She had mercy on me, and you know, I I um. I ended up going back to college a year later. I worked in a factory for a year, and I hated that. I hated it. And and part of being on probation, I had to go to drug counselling. In Ireland, they send you to drug counselling, well, they did at the time. And uh, so I had to do drug tests every week. So I had to totally quit doing drugs, or if I failed the test, I would have went to jail. So I stopped doing the drugs, and, and uh, I was just drinking. And and. I couldn't drink like a normal person. I would it would always be extreme. Like with me, there was no no there was no chance of just having two two scoops and going home. I, I I wasn't able to do that. So even though I was on probation and not doing drugs, I used to drink a lot. But uh, I ended up going back to college, and uh, you know got my stuff together, kept a lid on things as best as I could, and uh, and you know I wanted to go to America for the summer, so. 
I asked the probation officer if I could have permission to to go to America because I was being good, like as far as he knew, and and uh, you know I I I wanted to try it out because my friends were going to America for the summer, and uh, so I had to get permission to leave, and uh, it was it was a, it was kind of funny. She says to me, she says, "Where do you want to go?" I says, "I want to go to San Francisco." She goes, "San Francisco is it?" I says, "Yeah," and she goes, "I let you go on one condition." I says, what's that? She says to me, I swear to God, this is true. She says, um, I want you to get the Greyhound bus down to LA, down to Los Angeles. And I want you to get a map to the stars. And I want you to go up and look at their houses. Will you do that for me? I says, no problem. I'll do that. And she goes, okay, I'll give you permission to go. And, and she gave me permission to go for the summer. So, <clears throat> so I went over to America for the summer and, uh, you know, there was no drug test in America, so I got back into the cocaine again. At that point, I was into the drugs and kind of went crazy for a summer. I was, but that's when when I met my my future wife, and and um, you know, me and her had a long distance relationship for a couple of years, and then, you know, I went back I went back home for another year of college, and then I came back to America for another summer, and then I came back and I finished my probation and I graduated college, and then uh, eventually she got pregnant. And um, I had I made the decision to come over to America to to be a dad, or at least try to be one in the state that I was in at the time. And what age were you then, Richie? I was twenty two. I was only twenty two. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Because like I was, what I've been listening to is I'm figuring based on what you've just told me, you you must have been thirty at this stage because you couldn't have packed all that <laughs> crap into into that period of time. <laughs> oh, dude, this is the short version I'm giving you. Awesome. Like, <laughs> like, like my my original document from the book was 430 pages, and I think what went to print was like 180 or something like that. So I have volumes more. I could have wrote a book when I was 21 or 22 because all right. this crazy stuff had happened to me at that point in my life. Like, but um, yeah, um. Yeah, so, so I, I got married really young, and she was older than me. She was 10 years older than me, too. So right. It was, it was a strange match, you know. So uh, you're back in, in the States. By the way, before we we move off that, did you do to get the map of the stars? Oh, I did. I did. Uh, myself and my buddy John Stack, we, we drove down. Uh, well, we actually we didn't take the Greyhound bus. We we rented the car. We we did. We went around, mapped of the stars, all that jazz, you know. Right. Yeah. Uh, good yeah. for you, right? So anyway, you're you're back in San Francisco, and and um, you're working on the buildings. Yeah, yeah. When I when 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 the baby arrived, I, I realized that I used to work as a as a mover, like moving furniture and people moving houses, and that's a real, uh, at least at the time in San Francisco, that's a real uh, drug addict job or alcoholic job because you know it's kind of donkey work and we used to get high while we were moving and everything and one of the drivers was a crackhead he used to be smoking crack in the back of the truck on the way to like uh, the customer's house so I knew that construction made more money so I, so I, I um, my buddy got me a job as, as a, a carpenter so, so well, yeah you just triggered something there before you leave it um, while you were in the moving business I gather you acquired an appreciation for art <laughs> well, that was a bit later, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Later on, I ended up robbing a really valuable painting. Yeah, from from one of the old customers. Like, 
Yeah, and and we'll get to we, we don't let us go beyond uh, the story about dealing with that. But anyway, so you got you got onto the buildings. That's a, li- a little bit more money coming in from there. Oh yeah, there was more money, but it, it was hard old going. It was you know when I came to America, I didn't even know what two by four was. I, I literally had zero idea about what about construction. I just started off sweeping floors and you know learned how to learned how to use the tools and. We were framing houses, and the boys were all from Cork, and they used to give me dogs abuse, like screaming at me every day. It was like the Marines, but uh, <laughs> yeah. And and then for me, I used to I do did a lot of coke then too at that point, and I was making good money. And and in my head, I used to think because I'm working so hard, I need to get high every weekend, and uh, that continued for a few years. And I, in terms of criminality, I was go- I was well behaved for a few years. Excuse me. I was just a, I was just a, a, a casual enough user, but uh, the marriage wasn't going well. Obviously, because if your husband is out doing coke and disappearing for days at a time, you're, you're not going to be a very good husband or dad. Like, and then um, recession time came around 2008, and like you know, there wasn't a whole lot of jobs around, and that's when I got back into dealing drugs again. I ended up working with this Asian gang selling cocaine. And I gather you were the only Caucasian. Well, I was the only honky in the gang, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't even realize that was funny until I met uh, John, my writing partner. And he says to me, he goes, you were in an Asian gang? <laughs> I says, yeah. He says, well, you're not Asian. I says, yeah, so? He goes, well, what are you doing in Asian Asian gang? I just said, well, they had the best cocaine. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I didn't really want to join them, which was kind of, I asked them to be my suppliers because I, I was uh, I was getting my coke off an Irish guy, the bulk, and selling it, and the Irish guy, his nickname was The Pony, and uh, The Pony was giving me this this coke, and it was, wasn't very good, it wasn't very strong, so if you're if you're a drug dealer out there, uh, you obviously know that if you have the good stuff, you'll, you'll sell way more than the person who has the bad stuff. So I was getting the good stuff for myself off these Asians, and and then I had the brainwave that oh maybe I could get the bulk off them and sell sell their stuff, and they basically said if I was going to sell their stuff I had to join their gang and I wasn't allowed to work with anybody else. So that's that's how I ended up working with them, which was kind of. A... And how long did that escapade last? Oh, that that escapade lasted until I got sober in 2010. Right, and in the right. and in the meantime, I went to Australia for a wee while too because yeah. the old marriage was on the rocks, and and um, uh, um, I thought that America was the problem. Like originally, I kind of thought maybe Ireland is the problem with my behaviour, so I came to America, and then I thought maybe America is the problem. I'll go to Australia, so I I went to Australia for a few months around two thousand nine, two thousand ten, and then came back and. I eventually got sober in September 2010. Right. Um, 2010, um, you're still in construction when this happened? Yeah, yeah. Even yeah. though I was still in coke, I was, I was still still working in the buildings as well. Right. Yeah. So now we'll tell them about the book you've written, because you just said you got sober. Yeah. So basically, the, the, book, the book is called The Gangster's Guide to Sobriety. Yeah. Uh, which is... A very, uh, a, a very appropriate title in in many ways, and um, and it's at my life in twelve steps. Um, so we'll 
let's jump forward and just talk the uh, the book first of all. You've just uh, this is it's effectively an autobiography of of your recovery. Yeah, yeah. The book came out a couple of months ago, and I I wrote it with uh, the guys who created Silicon Valley, the TV show, and I used to work on King of the Hill, and they're they're my writing partners on it. And so I I got sober twelve years ago, and um, the idea of writing it well, you know, I I got sober by going going to recovery meetings, and and part of the deal when you're sober is you're you're supposed to tell your story to help the new person so so that they know how to do it. So I had been doing that for a lot of years. Um, I Once I got sober, I took it really seriously and, and I did everything that was suggested to me. And a lot of times people said to me over the years that um, I should write a book. And, you know, I, I thought about it for a while and eventually I decided to do it. And and um, because, you know, I, I'm an actor now and I, I play a lot of uh, bad guy or gangster roles on TV and that's what they always cast me as, you know, I have that look. So the part of it too was about being authentic. Like, you know, this is, this is my real past and history and, and, um, but I don't do that kind of stuff anymore. And so, so it was about, I guess the sort of, just, it was about being authentic about my story and, and showing people that if you are as bad of a case as me, it's possible to, get sober and have have a, a decent life you know um transitioning from the buildings to acting was the result of uh you you suffered an accident you broke your back yeah yeah uh, um uh, and and i know that that meant that you could no longer do the physical work and um someone suggested to you that you looked the part and you should consider <laughs> Well, originally didn't suggest that I should be an actor. It was like when I got sober in 2010, I, you know, I immediately quit misbehaving and drug dealing. Because, I, I, you know, I, it was told to me that you can't be sober and be dishonest and do shady stuff because part of being sober is you've got to change change the way you're behaving. No more cheating on the wife, no more fighting, no more breaking the law, no more telling lies. So, you know, I, I took it seriously because... um I felt like I was given a chance to to fix my life, so I I was a hundred percent all in with it, and um, part of part of it too was fixing fixing up my 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 personal life and my career. So I wanted to be a contractor. I wanted to I wanted to have my own construction company and build houses around San Francisco, and that was my plan. And you know I had to pay off the IRS. I owed money for taxes and clean up a lot of the wreckage from how I had been behaving. And then, uh, you know, I passed my test for the license and, and uh, that was the plan. And I was working for another guy at, the, at that time. And uh, I was doing a remodel on a house in the mission in San Francisco. And a big beam fell down and hit me, knocked me off the scaffold. And, and I fell, fell down and broke one of my discs and herniated the other one. And um, eventually when I, I had gone to the doctors and all that, they told me that I'd never be able to do that again. My back is permanently wrecked. And uh, so I, 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 you know, I, I lost all my money. I had to, I had to go to court with the guy I was working for because he, because he fired me, and it was pretty hopeless because I, I thought, you know, oh, I'm after like, I'm after stopping being bad. Things are supposed to be good now, and it was a lot of like poor me and and uh, feeling sorry for myself, and 
the boys at the meetings just told me, God, just keep on coming and, you know, doing what, what you're supposed to be doing. Everything will be okay. Like, And uh, I didn't really believe them, but I listened to them. And uh, this doll that I knew at a meeting, she suggested I should be a model. And at that point, I was like 29 years old or 30 years old. And uh, I didn't think I was model material at all. <laughs> so, But I, I was willing to take the suge- suggestion because I had I was broke. And I sent off some pictures to modeling agencies and a crappy one kind of signed me. And, and I ended up doing a small bit of modeling. I didn't particularly like it, but it was legal and and uh, and it was honest work <laughs> and, and I didn't have to lift heavy items. So I did a little bit of modeling and then a, a director, this guy Weston Simpson, he saw me on on, uh, on a modeling website and he asked me to be in a little short, low budget film that he was doing. So I, I agreed to do it and it was a gangster role. And, you know, he, he says, don't take this the wrong way, but you have that look about you. And, uh, you know, he, I, I didn't tell him that I used to be one, but, but, uh, I didn't want to scare him. But, um, yeah, he, he gave me the job and I really enjoyed it. And, and I said, you know what? I'll just try and be an actor now. And right. then I, I took a bunch of classes and started doing small projects, non-union stuff. And then eventually I moved to LA and the jobs have been getting bigger over the years and they keep on hiring me to play gangsters and, <laughs> that's I just finished one uh I, I did a TV show over in um Pittsburgh, um Mayor of Kingstown that'll be coming out in January. That's my my latest one that I was on. And you also did some directing? No. Did, no. I did, no, no directing. Uh, I, I did some writing. Okay, I'm what am I looking at down here at the bottom? Uh sorry, writer, yeah. Okay, or oh, producer. You're, mm-hmm. You have you have five credits as a producer. Yeah, I produce little uh, short films and web series and stuff, and and they 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 they're planning on um, making my book into a TV show as well, so I'll be producing on that too. Right, right, mm-hmm. and um, then um, you've written um, Guru of the Ghetto, The Dirt Bike, and Himmler Entertainment. Uh, mm-hmm. So you've kind of, I suppose. In the last 10, 11 years, 12 years, um, mm-hmm. did you ever envisage that you could be who you are today? No, not in my wildest dreams. Like, <laughs> it's crazy. Like, I don't know how you go from being a uh, hopeless alcoholic and drug addict, you know, to what I'm doing now. It's kind of insane. Like. And um to that extent while you in writing the book and I'll get into a little bit of the the book in a moment um in writing the book has any of the feedback that you've got from people who have read it helped them the lights to come on for them uh, because the approach you've taken is it's interesting yeah i've got hundreds of messages from people and it's been touching, like, you know, yeah, from all over the world. Like. And I've done, I've done days of interviews like this, you know, different podcasts and TV shows and stuff like that, just to get the word out about the book. So, yeah, it's it, it's been it's been cool to be able to contribute something positive when I spend all those ne- years doing negative things, like, you know, like I used to sell sell drugs, like I was selling people the tools to destroy themselves, like, and and um. 
I was taking them myself at the time, so I didn't know any better. But um, I guess it's a way of trying to make up for how I behaved. Like, right. Um, most recovery programs, there's a lot of recovery programs out there, and I've heard it, that they use a 12-step formula mm-hmm. or a 12-step um, setup. Um, I look at, you've put 12 chapters in your book, and it's your 12 mm-hmm. steps. And um, I look at it and I say, like, here's step two. Uh, now I have to believe in God, uh, for fuck's sake. Like, um, <laughs> I, as I say, somewhat, somewhat different approach. Um, do you want to walk? Do you want to walk me through a little of 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 your your um, thought process in putting this together, and and well, and, and the chapter titles? Yeah, well, so basically, the original book was just a chronology, like because my original draft was basically a chronology of everything that happened to me from, well, a lot of the stuff that happened to me from age fourteen up to twenty nine, thirty. And but it was it was really long, and um, there's some really depressing parts in it, and maybe it might be a lot for for some people to, to read the original one. And John and Dave, they became my partners, and uh, they wanted to make the story more accessible to people, not so heavy. And the reason I got so sober was by going to these twelve step meetings, and uh, there's a lot of them out there, and they all work depending on what your problem is, and um, and. So I got sober by using the 12 steps at these, going to these meetings. And the boys, John and Dave, they came up with the idea of basing my story, each, each chapter on my, my experiences going through the 12 steps and then flashbacks to, um, things that happened in my past that are related to each one. So that was, that was the thought process of why we, we rewrote the thing like that. And the book agent thought it would be a good idea as well. It would be more accessible to people. And it was probably, um, I think, because it's shorter than what I originally had, it's probably more digestible to a lot of people who maybe aren't addicts or, or like somebody who's not who doesn't have a problem with addiction could enjoy reading it, you know. And so I, I kind of wrote each step as, as how I experienced it. You know, and step two, the official narrative is came to believe that a power greater than you could restore you to sanity. And so my take on that was, oh, for fuck's sake, I have to believe in God now. <laughs> you know, yeah. And like I know, number four is the shit list. Like, oh, the shit list, yeah. <laughs> um, again, an interesting chapter title. Yeah, so the shit list was, was um, they asked me to make a list of all the people, places, and things that I was angry at, and then write down how it affected me, and then what was my part in it. And so I just called it the shit list, because it was a lot of lot of shit that I didn't like. And um, so I had a list of all these people who had fucked me over the years. And, you know, I, even though I was the criminal in my own head, I kind of thought I was an okay guy. I thought, like, you know, even though I did bad things, I was kind of fair with people. That's what I thought. And I thought that, I thought that everybody screwed me over, and that that um, that I was a victim. And and then, you know, if you're if you're going to the meetings and you're trying to get sober, you you get a sponsor, and a sponsor is a person who uh, who shows you the ropes and teaches you how to how to get sober and stay sober. 
So my sponsor told me to make this list. His name was Bernard, or Americans would say Bernard. So, but he was an Irish fella, so we called him Bernard. And uh, so Bernard get, told me to do this list. And um, so the top of the list was your man who, the fella back home who had started to set me up with the cops, Ollie. And uh, so Bernard says to me, he says, well, what's on your list? I says, um, Ollie, what did he do to you? I says, uh, he set me up with the cops, fucking ratted on me. And then Bernard says to me, he says, what was your part in it? I said, well, I didn't have a partner. I was a stand-up guy. I fucking didn't rat on anybody. Uh, uh, I did the right thing. I was a man about it. I, I didn't do anything wrong. And Bernard says to me, he says, weren't you selling drugs? I says, I says, yeah, so? He says, aren't drugs illegal? I says, yeah. He says, well, if you weren't fucking selling drugs, you wouldn't got fucking ratted on. <laughs> and, and that was a complete revelation to me because... I was in victim mode, and I and and I all of these things that I was mad about, I uh, I wasn't able to, able to see that I had a part in them, and and um, it made me feel like less of a victim, and it made me less angry, you know. Right. So that was that was the way we dealt with the the shit list. And, and number six. Uh, and I know uh, none of none of North Americans or North Americans might not understand it, but stop being such a bollocks. I know I've, oh. I, I know I've, I was asked the meaning of the word recently. Oh yeah, well, there's a few different in, in Ireland. The bollocks is, is a person, like uh, yeah. uh, but the Americans, the American equivalent would be a jerk off. So if the Americans are calling somebody a jerk off, we would if someone's a bollocks, we're calling them same thing. But in England, uh, bollocks is like a term for oh shit, oh bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> in, in in England, they don't call a person a bollocks. Okay. And a bollocks is also a pair of testicles. So, <laughs> so stop being such a bollocks. Um, I the the recovery end of that was where I had to start looking at my behavior. Um, you know, these character defects that I had, that that these these things that were wrong with my personality that was creating chaos in my life and and leading me into conflict with other people and essentially creating situations where I'm going to end up drinking at the end of it. And, you know, part of it was me being paranoid, you know, quick to anger, all that kind of stuff. So, and, you know, unfaithful. That was another one too. I could, when I was drinking and getting high, I couldn't be faithful to my wife. Like, you know, so I had to look at all those kind of things and, you know, monitor my behavior. And like an example of one of the things that happened, like after I got sober, when I was going to the meetings, Bernard told me I needed to get commitments at a meeting. And I said, what's a commitment? He says, a commitment is a job that you do at the meeting, and it makes you come every week and show up and you need to help the meeting. And I said, okay, I'll do that. And so so uh, at one of the meetings that I used to go to, the secretary, the, the person who was in charge of the meeting, they, they made an announcement. They said, we need somebody to take a commitment as a greeter. And uh, the boys were were elbowing me and uh, who were sitting beside me, like as if to say, "You take that commitment." So I put up my hand. I said, oh, "I'll do it." I didn't even know what it was, like, and uh, so I agreed to be the greeter at this com- at at this meeting. So uh, when the meeting was over, I said, "Okay, what do I have to do?" And they said, "Well, you have to come to the meeting early every week and stand at the door and welcome people to the meeting." 
And I, I was like, fuck's sake, I don't want to do that. Like, because, because when I was newly sober, I felt as low as a snake's belly. I was depressed. I didn't want to look people in the eye. I, I just wanted to hide out in the back. And, you know, the last thing I wanted to do was come early and stand at the door and say, how are you? Welcome to the meeting. But I had agreed to do it in front of everybody. So I was, I was stuck. I had to had to show up as, as the greeter. So... I ended up coming coming to the meeting and showing up for this greater commitment every every week, and I ended up enjoying it because what happens when you come early, you end up making friends with people and talking to people at the door. So I, I was enjoying it actually. I ended up enjoying it. I'd stand, I'd lean up against the door, I'd be smoking cigarettes, just chilling, doing it like that, you know. And one of the fellas at the meeting, he was an old timer who'd been around for a while. Yeah, he came up. His name was Stephen. Stephen came up to me. Uh, outside the meeting, and he says, "What are you doing, standing against the door like that, smoking, smoking fags?" I said, "What?" He says, "That's a bad representation of the meeting. Stand up straight and put out that cigarette." And uh, I couldn't believe he said that to me. He was totally insulted. Like, you know, you know, sometimes when when a person insults you, you're so shocked at it in the moment that you don't even react to later. I was like, later, I was like, "Fuck, he's lucky he didn't get a box." He lucky I didn't punch him like and, and and then, you know, in my head I was totally offended and, and uh thought he was trying to wreck my sobriety and, and I, I was gonna like start going to the meeting. I was like, Fuck him. I was doing my best I could of my commitment, he's criticizing me all this shit. He he must want me to drink again, like this is the conspiracy theories I was having in my head. So I rang up Bernard and told Bernard what happened. I said, Fuck him, I'm not going back to the meeting. And Bernard said he listened to my shit and then he says he says, we don't behave like that in sobriety. And I said, what do you mean? Like, He says, if you have a problem with somebody, you call them up on the phone and you tell them you have a problem. You don't just run away, especially when it's your commitment. And uh, when he told me that, that's, that's the last thing I fucking wanted to do is ring up the fella and tell him I had a problem. I just wanted to like quit and run away. Like, And uh, so, so I, I had Bush... When Bernard said he'd sponsor me, he says, are you willing to do whatever it takes to, to be sober? I said, yeah. So that that meant I had to do whatever he said. Like, so I had already agreed to it. and So then I, I had to ring up this fella. Like, so I smoked a bunch of cigarettes and rang him up. I says, uh, Stephen. He says, actually, how's it going? I says, uh, Stephen, I have a problem with what you said to me at the meeting. Says, what did I say? I says, uh, you criticized me. Uh, for smoking smoking fags and uh, leaning up against the door. I was only trying to do my commitment. And he listened to what I was saying. And, like, usually if you were in a bar and if you said that to someone, they'd tell you to fuck off. Like. But he didn't say that. He, he, he listened to what I said, and he said, you know what? You're right. I'm sorry. Are we cool? I couldn't believe he apologized to me. And and, and, and we resolved the conflict just like that. And I came back to do my commitment and I tried not to smoke so many cigarettes and I tried to stand up straight. But it was a completely new experience for me because when I was drinking, if you have a problem with somebody, you fight them or, you, you know, there's no talking about it or, or resolving things. You know, this was like and, and, you know, I was a paranoid person as a result of all these drugs and drinking that I was doing. So I, I was paranoid that he was like trying to ruin me by, by just, just saying something like that to me when I was, when I was there smoking at the door, you know? So, so I had to, I had to recognize what these defects I had were and work on them, 
You know, and it, I'm not, I'm still obviously not a perfect person, but I, yeah. I'm a lot better than I was back then. I'm going to one other chapter, and it says, the person you marry when you're totally fucked up might not be the one you would marry when you're sober. And other realizations. Yeah, well, as I said, I got married at 22, and there was a 22-year-old cokehead, you know, drug addict, alcoholic, and, um, you know, I got married because uh, I, I thought it was the right thing to do at the time, but after I got sober, you know, we ended up not staying together. After I got sober, we, we stayed together for two or three more years, and then we ended up breaking up, you know, and... and um. Yeah, just because you got sober doesn't mean everything is going to work out in your life. But, you know, I'm still a dad to my kids. And, like, uh, yeah, um, I'm kind of going with the flow. Like. Right, right. Mm. Um, let's get back to your acting career. Uh, you mm. just say you finished up on, on a series or there's something coming out in January. I have to confess at mm. this stage, I don't watch TV. So, oh. so consequently, when I found your your um, profile and the book, uh, I'm looking down and, and Days of Our Lives meant something to me. I, I've never watched an episode. And after that, I looked down through all this and I said, no, nothing. No, 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 no. And that's not your fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I've, and I'm I've not. Tra- I'm not trying to deflate your ego. But... <laughs> oh, don't worry, my, my ego didn't get didn't deflated. No, no, uh, no, no. no um, yeah, no. I've, I've done mostly TV, not a whole lot of movies, but yeah, I, I a lot of times they played the bad guy of the week. You know, those kind of procedural dramas or Criminal Minds or Blue Bloods. You know that kind of stuff. And, yeah, and I'm good at doing the the accents as well. I'm not usually an Irish guy, and usually I have hair. If you're looking at me on the video here, I'm scalped. Um, right. They 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 cut all my hair off for the show that I'm on at the moment. Um, but yeah, um, it's been it's been a blessing to find something new and something that I'm good at, and and um, yeah, it's 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 enjoyable work. You know, I enjoy I enjoy playing characters and the competition of going and auditioning and. Stuff and- like that. During COVID, um, the gig industry took a big hit. Uh, mm. Were you were you affected by it? Well, um, not really, because entertainment industry was seen as exempt from the lockdowns. Um, so most productions carried on during the the pandemic, but the actual doing the job was a lot different because so if you're going and if you're working on projects at the moment you still have to get covid tests regularly and all that kind of jazz to be on the set and you know i have friends who have lost big jobs because they failed the covid test the day or two before and they give it to somebody else they've like like in the at the height of the pandemic it was really strange because so everybody was wearing masks and face shields on the set and so, like, for example, I, I was on NCIS during during the, the pandemic. I was playing a bad guy on that. And so, basically, you're going around on the set. Everybody's wearing masks and, and, a, and a face shield. And you, you go to the set where they're shooting. So, in the scene, I'm, I'm in a scene with, with another fella. We're both sitting in chair, chairs, and we're, it's an interrogation scene. So, you come in with all your mask and your gear on you. And and you practice with the mask and the, the face shield on you. And then just before the camera rolls, somebody comes around and takes your mask and your face shield off you, puts it into a bag, 
and you act without the, the face shield and the mask on you, and you do your acting, and then as soon as it's over, this person comes back again, and you throw it back on yourself again, and the director comes over and gives you instructions with the mask and the shield on you, and then you have to take the thing off again. So <laughs> there's an on-off kind of crap. Like So you'd want to have good con- concentration, because if you didn't, like this crazy shit to be putting a mask on and right. off yourself. Right. Like, but that's what the regulations were, you know? Yeah. Do you get to go back to Ireland much? Yeah, I've been back a lot of times. Um, I haven't been back since the pandemic, but that year I went back. I went back twice that year, yeah, yeah. 2019. Yeah. yeah. Are you seeing Ireland through different eyes now? Yeah, it's a different different experience when you go back sober. Like, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, and I know there's um, between, certainly in Dublin with the housing crisis and the drug problem um, and in, in Dublin, it's pretty bad. And um, I know it, it must be hard and heart-wrenching when you go along and you see people struggling and you know you'd love to be able to change their lives, but you can't. Yeah, yeah. It's actually way worse here in L.A. Like there's something like 50 or 60,000 homeless people on the streets of L.A. Yeah. You have ten, little tent cities all over the place. And it's kind of crazy, you know, um, I have worked with a few of them uh, in terms of after you're sober for a while, you're supposed to sponsor other people and, and help them to get sober. And it's it's a crazy situation. But, you know, at least here in L.A., there's a lot of help if they want it, you know. Right. Um, there's a lot of uh, free rehabs and sober houses. and um, But the rules are when you go into them, you're not allowed to drink or get high. So a lot of people just choose to stay on the streets instead of... Uh, following the rules in these yeah. places and also yeah. you have an awful lot of mental illness too like the, the mental illness is tied to the drug drug use in, I'd say most cases you know. right um, Richie we better wrap up uh, again the title of the book is uh, a, The Gangster's Guide to Sobriety My Life in 12 Steps <laughs> it's out there uh, if anyone wants to get their hands on it where should would you direct them to go uh, you can get the book on Amazon, um, uh, Barnes and Noble, Simon and Schuster, Walmart, all those kind of places. And if you if you want to hear the audio, I do the the audible as well. Okay. Do you want me to before you go, Austin? You said to remind you about the painting story. Do we have time for that? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. We do, we do. We do. You you the, the, yes. you, you okay. acquired you acquired a, a okay. very a valuable painting. Okay, so, you know, part of the deal when, when you're doing the steps getting sober is you're supposed to make amends for the bad things that you did while you were drinking and getting high. So one of the things I did was I robbed this valuable painting when I was drinking and using it, and I had gotten away with it. It was worth a lot of money. I sent it back to Ireland in case the cops ever came looking for it. It was, it was like my retirement plan. I was going to sell it in the future, you know, maybe buy a house with the money or whatever. But after I got sober and then I got to this step and Bernard told me I had to make amends for all the bad things that I had done. I had got away with most of the bad things I had done. Bernard says, don't worry, we're not going to send you to jail. So so uh, I, I got this paint and mail back from Ireland to me. And then I had to figure out a way of giving it back without going to jail like I couldn't just go up to the place where I robbed it and say oh sorry I stole this please don't arrest me because it's like it's grand theft so I had to figure out a way of giving it back and um, so we were trying to figure it out Bernard didn't know 
So he asked his sponsor. His sponsor didn't know. And we're trying to figure out how to give this thing back. And if you're in the meetings, there's all kinds of people. There's police, lawyers. It's it's kind of a spot where you'll meet people from all different backgrounds because all kinds of people have these addiction problems. It's not just criminals like me who was there. <clears throat> so we asked around like to try and figure out a way how to how to give this thing back. And one of one of my friends is an old IRA man from Sligo. And I asked him, and, and uh, he came up with this plan where we would bring it to a, a, an undisclosed location and then go to a phone box, a phone booth, and make an anonymous call and tell them to pick it up. So that was one of the plans. But we ended up not doing that one because somebody else could have found it and stole it. And, yeah, so it was kind of a harebrained scheme. So we knocked around all these different ideas of how to give back to painting. And eventually we figured out, like, where I robbed it near there, there was a seminary for training priests. So I drove down to the seminary and uh, <clears throat> I asked to speak to a priest and make a confession. Like, and um, this priest came out and he says, you know, Father, I'm trying to stay sober. I fucking stole this paint and I need to give it back, but I don't want to go to jail. So I asked him would he give it back for me anonymously and, and he agreed to do it. And uh, so I handed him the painting and felt like a million bucks because uh, it was the most valuable thing I ever owned. But I, I was I was willing to do whatever it took to stay sober. So so uh, I, I ended up getting rid of it and it was given back and and I didn't go to jail for it. That's that as long as long as the owner of the painting doesn't read your book and realise, Oh, that's how I got it back and that's who did it. <laughs> well, if he has it back, that's the main thing anyway. Right. Richie, Steve, it's been a real pleasure, a real pleasure chatting with you. And thank you very much for taking the time. And again, it's the Gangster's Guide to Sobriety and you can get it at all booksellers. Um, and uh, it's, it is an excellent read. Thanks a million, Austin. It was a pleasure chatting with you.